Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. Um, I've got a bit of a cold at the moment, so I'm going to keep this intro as brief as possible because it's quite difficult to talk. My guest this week is a wonderful woman and friend, Nia Childs. Nia is a freelance creative producer and curator working in both the fiction and documentary space. She's produced, curated and programmed projects for Doc Society, BAFTA, Sheffield Docfest, the London Short Film Festival and The Roundhouse. More recently, she has begun to write and direct her own films with her debut short, The Other End, premiering at the BFI London Film Festival earlier this year. We spoke about a myriad of things, including managing your finances as a freelancer, making a short film in lockdown, crowdfunding and finding a producer. We also touch on storytelling about crime, climate and class and why people should watch more short films, as well as how Nia overcame anxiety around bad onset experiences to create a fun and safe atmosphere on her own set. I want to thank Nia for her candor about her finances and some of her fears about her transition to filmmaking. I genuinely think it's going to be a crucial lesson for any fellow freelance creatives. This is episode 97 of Best Girl Grip. So did you go to uni? And if so, what did you study there? I did. I Well, I went to Goldsmiths and studied drama for six weeks and hated it and dropped out. So after that, I then went to Kent um, UKC and studied film instead, which was okay. the right decision. <laughs> so film was definitely like percolating in your mind as like the thing that you wanted to pursue? Yeah. So I, I studied film and like performing arts at college and I'd always wanted to be an actress. So by the time it came to like decide what I was going to do, I definitely felt it was too late to change my mind. So I was like, I got into Goldsmiths, which is quite good uni to get into for drama anyway. And I was mm. just like, oh, well, I've got in now. I might as well do that. And then, yeah, just the doubt almost as soon as I moved to London from, from where I'm from, uh, I was just like, mm. oh, God what have I done? And yeah, it didn't last very long, about six weeks. And then, yeah, then I dropped out and immediately knew that I was going to study film and just take a year, which is, um, which is what I did. Right. Like a gap year and then go back. Exactly. Exactly. And was it like, it was a theory based Kent course or a filmmaking course? Okay. Uh, Yeah, no, it was theory based. Yeah, it was film studies, although we did have like a module in like filmmaking in the first year. And then in the second year, there was a module in screenwriting and documentary and then you had to get like over a certain percentage on each of those to make films in your third year which I did and then I was like oh actually I don't want to make films who wants to do that and now I'm a filmmaker (laughs) (laughs) yeah taking it all back and I mean I don't know if it's anything like my course but I I really didn't come out of that with any sense of like the jobs that you could do in the industry so like did you know you know was there a certain path that you were looking to chart or you just kind of came out feeling a bit clueless and was like well I'll take the first job offered to me well I think yeah I was definitely probably more of the latter I think the thing about Kent which is so different and the reason I went to Kent over other universities that I needed higher grades to get into that I got into was like it you know it was it was like very very research-based and it was very much you just do your own thing you develop what you want to develop and the course was so different to all the other very standard let's watch Citizen Kane kind of we didn't watch Citizen Kane (laughs) at UKC so actually I think it was really good in the sense that it really allowed you to develop you know that's when I completely fell in love with like British cinema which I'm still completely in love with now but we were the first university and I was like the second group of like in that term to Mm. study film programming which I know Mm. happens quite a lot now 
now you can do it at NFTS even film school but you just couldn't back then and I didn't understand what film programming was I just didn't know what it was mm. um and I'd make, and also like the teachers at UKC are brilliant it did then make me think about curation as something that was possibility but if it wasn't curation which I did want to do but was impossible to find a job in it was either curation or academia like to stay on do a PhD and and learn about film Mm. or like teaching obviously but yeah they were the only two things I really understood if you didn't want to be a filmmaker that were available to you that was that was what you could do and what was your first official job in film like what did you do after graduating so I stayed in in Canterbury where I, where I, studied. I stayed there for a year to like save up money which obviously I didn't moved to London and then I moved to London because I had like an unpaid internship at like an arts and culture venue in East London which I did for like eight months and did that like two days a week and then like worked in hotels so I worked like seven days a week yeah. constantly constantly but then through that just having that experience and also when I was at uni I was incredibly involved I was like the president of the film society I co-edited the film magazine I was like the student rep for film studies department like all of that stuff so having that and then having this internship that I did for like eight months I got uh, I got a paid internship at BAFTA which was my first job in film which you know obviously is a bit of a game game changer really in terms of like getting your foot in the door I suppose mm, what were you doing there what was the internship in so it was um it was like they so they have internships and actually for anyone listening who's interested like they still do do them and they are really really worth uh, doing so they have sort of internships in different departments and I did mine in the learning and events department so it was actually doing like membership events for the BAFTA membership but then I ended up staying on a little bit longer and then actually working on the film awards and the tv awards which was great but yeah I hadn't gone in being like I really want to do events. It was more like, I really want to work for BAFTA. And I had done events and stuff because I'd done film programming at uni as well. Like I'd, I'd put on like a little mini film festival and stuff. So I sort of knew what I was doing. But you continue to do events now. So I'm wondering like what it is particularly about that atmosphere, like, yeah, producing events that piques your interest or that you think that you're good at. I think what it was, and, and, and like I have to say, now that I'm getting older, at the right old age of 34, <laughs> my my sort of taste for doing events has started to wane a little bit more. And I, I still am doing it and I still love it, but it's actually quite a sort of disruptive way to live. <laughs> I think, you know, like I used to work for Sheffield Dockfest, so I would be up, you know, I'd have to leave London for three months at a time, find someone mm. to rent my room, go up to Sheffield, and which is really, really fun. So much fun, but it's quite disruptive to your life after a while. And obviously mm. working really long hours, on no sleep loads of booze like all of that stuff it sort of catches up with you a little bit Mm. but I suppose you know I suppose it particularly sort of doing events at BAFTA where you're sort of doing them at the highest level really you can be doing them working with sort of A-list celebrities and really sort of VIPs in in the industry you sort of uh, it's the excitement that you think well this is what I know about the film industry this is what I've learned that it is and here I am living it you know and there was a lot of that I think there's a lot of and it's, it's certainly not a glamorous job but I think the thrill of kind of like having that you know those experiences that you have in person and watching people immediately respond to something you've that you've helped sort of curate or that you've helped Mm. produce it's obviously yeah it can be quite exciting for sure and how did that kind of lead to where you are now like again you know were you just did the momentum of like finding new jobs in that in that sphere kind of pick up or be having to like hustle quite hard to like find you know lots of different jobs yeah it was it was quite tough I think 
also because it's it's quite seasonal work like there yes. seems to be periods like right now actually like September to December are my busiest month yeah, it's awards it's just, yeah absolutely there's just like loads going on and then you have the sort of winter January February that you're like oh god am I ever gonna eat <laughs> yeah so I actually ended up getting like a permanent events job at a cinema chain you know where which I thought this is great because it's a permanent job, actually quite decent salary. And like, I can, can stay here and, you know, cause I, I need to have variety or I get really bored. So it's like, okay, right. well, I'm, I'm, I'm working over all these different cinemas. We've got all these things happening, but I actually, I actually didn't really didn't like working there. And I think eventually like what became really clear to me was I need to have a bit of freedom. So obviously when I made the decision that I was going to go freelance, you know, it, it was kind of accepting that part of that was going to be a hustle and part of that was going to have to be finding. And, and you do really have to like, okay, I'm an events person so like I'm very good at producing events but also like I'm an incredibly creative person like the curation obviously and like programming I suppose actually comes along with that so it's about finding ways of like taking those skills and diversifying them and growing them I do want to devote a good chunk to like talking about freelancing because I mean we've had a chat about you've helped me with like freelancing and getting yourself organized and so I definitely want to like pick your brain about more of that but you kind of mentioned um one of your job titles there which is creative producing so you're a filmmaker curator and creative producer I'd love to like unpack what each of those titles means to you I mean filmmaker is probably the most obvious but I mean I would love to ask what it does mean to you to be a filmmaker well I suppose because it's quite a new thing and actually again I sort of hesitated so much for a long time about how how I'm sort of putting myself out there because Mm. you have to sort of balance all of you know all of the different things that you do like I have to you know I have I'm sort of the the filmmaker side of my career is something that I'm developing I've had one film that I've made so now I feel that I can legitimately call myself a filmmaker obviously (laughs) And, and what it means it's not just about like what it means to me as a creative person it's also what I'm trying to say to the people that are out there you know like uh, I was quoted in some article the other day as a filmmaker and I was like oh my gosh I am a filmmaker <laughs> do you know what I mean and and, it, and actually that does change how other people approach you as well when you have multiple job titles like so I actually had a woman contact me on it on LinkedIn just a couple of days ago saying hey um hope you don't mind me asking but I've got a project that I could really do with your advice on and I was like I, I don't know what you mean by that because you could mean so many things <laughs> you know do you mean like because you're a filmmaker and you got into London Film Festival do you mean because you're a programmer and you want some fe- advice about festivals you know and I actually and she was just like oh gosh of course yeah I've been like really vague but I think that's what having like I think they call it what they call it like a multi-hyphenated job title means it's it's kind of having to know when to position yourself as those individual mm-hmm. things when you're trying to to get work or, or trying to sort of change how people see you from the outside absolutely yeah that's so true and, and creative production can we like talk a bit more about like what that means to you you know like obviously production you're producing things but what what does the creative element entail I guess is what I'm asking yeah I think I think creative producer and I, I, I honestly I've played with my job title so many times <laughs> but I, I think creative producer is probably closest to what I do like a lot of the time I think it's the expectation of a creative producer is not only to actually do the work to deliver it to look after the budgets to organize the suppliers all that sort of thing it's also having like the sort of creative sort of like looking over what's going on so like I wouldn't particularly want to do a job where someone was just I have done all of this stuff I just need you to deliver it which is what a producer does a lot of the time it's definitely more like 
who I am and what my knowledge is and what my interests are kind of play a part in how I decide to deliver something I suppose mm-hmm. yeah like coming up with the speakers or like the themes around it, which it, they're exactly. gonna be yeah, yeah yeah and then yeah coming back to freelancing I mean it seems to me like you are suited to that lifestyle you know like the the need for variety and the fact that you're interested in like lots of different things you know I'm wondering like why why particularly that is you know is it just a restlessness or you know do you think that people that maybe aren't suited to freelancing can also make that work yeah I think I think yeah for me what it what it was and again of of course like of course it's like really straightforward things I do get bored really easily and I do need to have like variety and different things going on but I think the moment for me was like you know I, I suppose and it sort of plays into lots of conversations that I feel are becoming more and more prominent in the film industry. For the longest time, I think anyone who knows me will know, like I do have quite strong opinions about things and I can sort of mouth off sometimes in ways that probably aren't appropriate about <laughs> things. So so the, the sort of permanent events job that I mentioned earlier that I really hated, my sort of dislike came from the culture of the company that I was working for. And I was kind of having to swallow my opinions on things that I didn't agree with. Some of them that I found like particularly abhorrent actually. And I just realized that like in that situation, it's so easy when you work for somebody, it's so easy to assimilate and kind of toe the line on you know whatever the company's policy is and I actually I've always found that something that's incredibly hard to do and I didn't I, I just sort of when I when I sort of I say that I left that job I was actually fired which I'm, I'm very happy to admit I could bore you with the whole story but to say that I'm very pleased that it happened because it happened because I was standing up for what I think was the right thing to do and I also got a, got a payoff as a result of that which meant that I had a little bit of time to decide what I was going to do next and at that moment I just I just I, I was really really upset because it was like three days before my 30th birthday that it happens and I remember thinking like how am I gonna like who even am I right now you know, what have I been doing this whole time? You know, obviously worried, like I've only got this, you know, I've sort of had three months worth of a payoff to, to decide what I'm going to do next. And I thought, well, I, I can do one of two things. I can either just find a permanent job and, and cruise along and coast along and be, or I can be happy and I can really figure out what it is that I want to do. And actually being freelance, of course, I'll work for organisations that, you know, I think, God, I couldn't work here all the time. Or, or you know, of course that happens every now and then, but I, it means that I get to be selective. And even if like, you know, every everywhere you work, there are sort of you know, office politics and all that kind of thing. It means that I do only work for organisations where I think, actually, I really like what you're doing. And actually, yeah. I re- or I really trust that you're good people or, or something like that, which I think is really important because it means that I can rest easy, mm. <laughs> that I'm not like contributing to some horrible corporate machine. But but also, it yeah, it just affords me that that variety really and and you know and I have to say like obviously by the time that happened I had worked in the film industry for quite a long time I'd been working in this about five years at that point which obviously afforded some contacts that I'd built up and that sort of which does does help when you think well at least there are some people that I can talk to I'm also really interested in you you said just earlier like when you were fired from that job and prior to your 30th birthday you kind of wanted to figure out what would make you happy like what did you do to figure that out you know did you do anything specific like go to therapy or like speak with friends or like find a mentor like what were you doing in order to decide what you wanted to do in the future 
Well, yeah, I think it was, I think it was actually a mixture of, of all of those things. I did actually start having therapy not long after that, which actually, I've been on a waiting list for ages. So it was actually more of a coincidence than anything <laughs> else that it came up for the right time. But yeah, and I was, I was in a, a deeply unhappy relationship at the time as well. So I think it was just like everything, everything I felt, I remember just feeling like, you know, people say that you turn 30 and it's like, yeah, new era. And I felt thoroughly miserable. I really mm. did. I actually think the first year was actually quite tumultuous. I I sort of learned the hard way about not being frivolous with money and like having structure to my day and things like that. Cause I didn't work for the first couple of months at all. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I'd, I'd got a job on a film actually, like on a film set that naturally as things happen, you know, they, they were taking a while to get the contracts all sorted out because that's what happens, you know. So the shoot dates kept getting moved back, moved back, moved back. And then you're thinking, I have now have a gap and I don't have anything financially to fill that. So there was, you know, it is going, well, if I take that job there, what does that mean for that for that job and that sort of thing? So, yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, was actually quite, it's not particularly intentional. Like I wasn't a particularly intentional person in that way. I think it was more like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And let's just see, see what happens. I just need to be happy. That's the thing. And I would say yeah, by the end of that year, I'd sort of come out of, come out of the horrible relationship and had a bit more work lined up coming over the coming months. And then once the wolf doesn't feel like it's at the door, you have a bit more time to be intentional in that way and think really mm-hmm. like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this work? So yeah, first year was utterly shit, to be honest. But after that, after that, it felt a lot, a lot easier. I think that's good to know though. Like so many people will go freelance, you know, myself included, and you kind of have this expectation of yourself that you're going to make it happen straight away and that you're, it's going to be plain sailing or that you need to have yeah things in place. And it is hard. It's, and it, I guess that kind of leads on to my next question, which is, I know that you've spoken about this on Twitter, but this, we have a, there's a bit of a stigma or shame attached to like asking for work and saying that you're like available and free for projects, because in a way you're like basically saying I'm unemployed, hire me. And I'm wondering if you found also that easier, like that, just asking around for your next project, you know, how do you go about looking for work now? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think one thing to say is that I always start asking way before it, it's come to like I, I never start asking when it's become desperate. I think that's right. the thing. I always start asking when I'm like, OK, I've got like a month left of this project or whatever and I don't mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. you know and I think actually that's really key it's not about like leaving it and then panicking and you know the fact of the matter is is I, I would say that I'm luckier than lots of freelancers in that I have you know the nature of my work uh, you know I have lots of friends who are film critics whose whose work is literally like pitching 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 okay landing rejection like all that sort of thing for me like you know I land a project and I'm on that project for maybe six months mm-hmm. the project I'm on right now I, I've been on since January do you know what I mean and yeah. it, which is not a common thing I'm very grateful you know it, it's it's about sort of forward planning I suppose mm-hmm. and I suppose I am someone as well like I don't I think talking about money and that sort of thing isn't like it, it candidly is incredibly important and I always sort of go well what you know I, I I have felt the shame of not having money for such a long period of my life a very long period of my life that actually it's like well what do I feel more embarrassed about having to like ring my mum and being like please can you give me 50 quid or like you know tweeting out and saying and and also when you tweet out and say that like the amount of people like when I've tweeted out on Twitter like hi guys I'm looking for this sort of work from this time onwards 
the amount of people that like retweet it like previous people I've worked with being like work with her she's amazing people in my dms being like oh I don't know if this is right actually my first job that I got at doc society was because you Nicole sent it to me and I was like oh thank you so much and I still work for doc society so thank you I forgot um, about that that's great did. yeah <laughs> yeah you know and actually that that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have asked you have to be proactive that's the thing you raise money and I do want to talk about money because as you say it's like it's just a huge part of freelancing like that ability to manage your own finances to kind of you can be so complacent I think when you know that you have a regular paycheck coming in but when things are much more by the project and you just it requires I think you know much more brain power I'm wondering you know how you taught yourself to kind of manage your own income did that come naturally or did it really require you know sitting down and being like right I need to get my shit together Definitely the letter. Like, honestly, I think about the fact that if I tell my mum that I've been on this podcast and talked about money, she'd be like, you? Ah, do you know what I mean? Honestly, like, I mean, you know, I grew up in sort of single parent family, mum on benefits, free school meals. So we didn't have any money growing up at all. And my dad wasn't around at all. So it was just very much like me and my mum and my brother and it for, for a really long time, not, not anymore, but at the time. And watching that person worrying about money and the shame of like knowing that if I, if there was something going on at school and you had to have two pounds for like the thing, it like just, I'm not even going to ask. Do you know what I mean? So I'd always, I'd always felt a sense of shame around money for a really, really long time. The thing is, is when I started owning my own money, which is when I was like 15, I got, uh, I got a job and I sort of, I've sort of been employed ever since, you know, I worked all the way through university, college, you know, from the age of 15 until the present day. I was just one of those people. Money just burns a hole in my pocket. I would just spend, 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 spend. I, I remember like I would get 300 pounds a month from working at Summerfield, which at 16 should be plenty, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not paying rent. I haven't, you know, it was like definitely before phone contracts. So, you know, I just needed to buy like phone credit. I would go in a week. I would honestly just like, maybe it wasn't as much as 300 pounds. I don't know, but it would go and, you know, when turning 18, going on nights out and everything. And and yeah, it would just go like, go like that. And then it's like borrowing money of your mate who then had to pay back your next paycheck and then be, oh God, it was so bad. And then I got to uni and it just got even worse. Mm. And it, it, it honestly like, because you, when you go to uni, you get a student account and you get like a thousand pound overdraft, like automatically. Obviously my kind of student loan thingy didn't cover my all my rent so I obviously had to work to subsidize that and you got your Mm -hmm. like you know and I didn't get any grants or anything like that because by then my mum had married someone so it was very like we're not poor anymore and oh my god but I, I just happened to hang out with a group of a group of guys who were all from like international schools their parents were like lawyers and doctors and pilots and everyone around me was rich and there was like me and about three, uh, two of my girlfriends who are still my best mates now, who we just had to work all the time. And then you end up like trying, you know, working in Weatherspoons. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, you end up trying to keep up with what they're doing. And oh, I mean, I was just ridiculous with money and it, it completely spiraled out of control. And I got myself in a lot of debt. And, you know, by the time that I'd actually become freelance, I'm still carrying a lot of that, a lot of that debt. It took a really long time to pay off and then you're borrowing more and that kind of happened. And 
and yeah it got to the point when I think it was I think for me the turning point was when this film wasn't you know this film that I was working on kept getting pushed back and I was really skinned and I just didn't know what I was going to do and I rang my mum and I was just like look <laughs> you need to like give me some money and my stepdad was very strict about this sort of thing and he was just like look I'm going to give you 50 quid now and it's got to last you two paycheck I don't care like starve like to be honest I realised I had like 50 quid to last me like three weeks or something until I got paid it living in London I just remember feeling like how like you know I was over 30 years old by this point and I'm just like how am I in this situation like I can't I can't keep doing this and I made it last I made it last I don't know what it was at that point I was suddenly like this can't go on anymore like I cannot keep being in this situation and obviously like I wasn't spending in the way that I had been at uni or anything like that it was just trying to keep on top of like credit card payments like all that sort of thing and literally I just drew up a budget and I was like right this is my rent this is what I have to pay back. Went to the bank, consolidated all my debt, like did all of that. And I again, there's no magic thing. I, I it's something just clicked in my head, and I went, I've really, really got to get on top of this. And to this day, like every single month, I have a literal budget of like all of my outgoings, what I have left over, what needs to go in savings, what needs to go in my pension, which is another thing that like <laughs> you just have to think about when you're a freelancer. And now I'm debt free like completely debt free and it, it, you know which I didn't think I would ever be able to do like mm-hmm. ever being like totally candid I actually don't earn like loads of money I'm happy to sort of say I, I earn between you know in a good year between 20 27 to 30 grand like I'm not on you know which I, which I know some people is, is like loads but it's not do you know what I mean it's not I'm not raking in thousands and thousands of pounds every month and when, you, when you're freelance actually it, for reasons that maybe I haven't quite figured out in my head it does go quite a long way mm-hmm. it goes probably longer than the average person because you obviously don't get taxed on that till later on and then because near the end of the year I'm so busy that I end up earning enough you know I, I obviously save enough for tax every month but mm-hmm. like I end up, you know I end up earning enough to like pay it off a couple of months early so that then I can start saving up for my next tax bill and it, you mm-hmm. know it's sort of it goes like that my next question is about like stability and you sort of answered the financial aspect in terms of like planning and make sure that, mm, that you're saving smart and you know have enough for tax but then I'm wondering how you foster a sense of stability like mentally like when you know it might be a month until your next project you know how do you stop from like spiraling like you're never going to get another job what do you do just to stay positive I guess yeah, I mean that never goes away. <laughs> there's always that there's always that fear. And I suppose I've been quite lucky. I've definitely had the odd the odd month where I've been like, oh, oh god, you know, what what's going to sort of happen? But again, I I think a lot yeah, a lot of it for me comes from as long as as long as I'm okay financially, I suppose, because actually, if you're not okay financially and if you're worrying about money, there are very few things that actually stifle creativity more than that. And you know, I was I was actually talking to a filmmaker the other day who was asking me what to do because she doesn't want to take like a regular job and and sort of do filmmaking on the side and I was like listen like when you don't have any money you're not going to be able to sit there and like write your script with a glass of wine one night because you don't feel like it because you're so worried all the time Mm. so I think once you once you have that down and once you actually plan ahead and go okay cool like like I know right now just because of the way that projects that I'm working on like I'm actually having a holiday like a like a foreign holiday (laughs) uh, in February for the first time ever a proper long holiday like two weeks and so right now I know that I'm okay to like April which is you know we're in 
November. So for me, that's great. So I'm just mm-hmm. like, okay, what point do I need to start being like, maybe January, I need to start being like, right, put some feelers out there, see to talk to you, see what's coming up kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's and it is all about planning, which sounds so boring. But the way that I see it, it's like that planning allows me to be creative. But obviously when the pandemic hit, my work just went like overnight. It was just, that was it, it was gone. Mm-hmm. And again, what as soon as I learned that I was actually one of the very few people, it seems, that was fortunate enough to be covered by the government SEISS scheme I was like okay cool got money fine and then I was like oh now I have all this time what shall I do and actually I thought I was going to drive myself mad but I was actually like spent some days sitting on my ass doing nothing to be honest with you and then uh, you know doing things like writing well making a whole film I mean you did I that made a whole, I made a whole film You made a whole film We have to talk about that Your first mm. short film The Other End um, Recently premiered At BFI London Film Festival And you did You made it in lockdown So talk to me about Did the idea come to you While just you know In a moment of inspiration Or was it something That you were thinking about For a while And you suddenly had Yeah the mental space To sort of develop it How did it come to you? Yeah well I think I, I'd actually I mean I'd written this script Ages ago like I don't know yeah like 2017 something like that and then in 2018 I sort of raised some money to make it but like nowhere near enough to actually make the film I raised like three and a half grand and that was through kickstarter yeah just to clarify yeah yeah exactly so and and if you don't I don't know just with kickstarter I just I know it's a question that comes up a lot but you can like keep that money even if you're like not making like as long as you hit your goal like that is like yours to still put towards the film yeah, sorry, no, I, it was actually Indiegogo. Indiegogo. And when you, when you do it through Indiegogo, you've got two options. You can either do the option of all or nothing, which mm-hmm. is like the, the lower fees, or you can do like, we'll just keep whatever we raise. And that's what we opted with. Right. But yeah, three and a half K was not enough to make a film. So it was kind of just sitting there. 2018 went by, 2019 went by. And yeah, late in 2019, we'd applied for BFI funding and had been, you know, spoken to, meeting, all of that, but but ultimately not awarded the money. And my, my housemate had actually said to me, like, whatever happens with this, if you don't get the money, you have to make the film. Like, that's it. You have to just find a way of doing it. And she was completely right, of course. So that's so, so I was just like, right, I'm going to have to find a way to do it. And early 2020, I found a really good producer, Alex De Silva, who, um, who, who produced the film. And I said to her, like, you know, by now, again, my money situation is a lot better. I've paid off my debt. And I was like, we're going to have to make it and I will put in like some of my own money. I agreed like 5K, we have to make it with five grand, which involves like not paying people, which is obviously shit. But I think that as long as you put certain parameters in place of like what people are to expect and how you're going to treat people and, you know, the corners that you're not going to cut in terms of people's health and safety, mm-hmm. people getting fed properly, being warm, being kind and having a nice time on set that kind of thing. Um, I actually went through shooting people and, and found people there that were sort of willing to sort of, you know, wanted to build up their showreel or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And I think as soon as, so obviously me and my producer have been planning it and then the pandemic hit. And I actually, I think like lots of people probably did quite a lot of inward searching and sort of realised that actually a big part of the reason that I've been like dragging my feet so much with this film is that I was quite scared actually I was quite frightened of doing it and I you know I'd never done it I'd never directed a film before apart from like stuff I made at uni and I was like oh actually like the only reason this film hasn't happened is you like I'm the only person that can really make it happen Mm. And I thought, you know, now you've got all this time. If you don't make the film in this period, you've only got yourself to blame. Like, you'll never have this much time ever again. Like, you have to do this. 
understand people had like crowd you know, given me money my all my mates my parents had given me money that was sitting in this account that I hadn't touched that they donated to in 2018 and by now it's 2020 and you're like I really actually have to do this now so that's what it was really just that motivation and time what was the fear that it would be shit that you couldn't do it yeah, that, that that I that it would be shit, that it would be hard, that I wouldn't know what I was doing. I, I think I think if I'm being honest, I am someone who is sometimes quite frightened to try something new. And yeah, even though I had faith in the script and and that sort of thing, I was yeah, I was I was quite worried that I wouldn't do a good job, and then I'd be embarrassed. And also, there's that thing of you know, I think if you're a if you're if you're making films when you're maybe in your early twenties, you know, you've got all this room and time to experiment and and do those things you know grab your mates grab a crappy little camera and do your best but I think I definitely felt the pressure as somebody who was working in the film industry who other people already knew who I was there was just this idea of like god what do people see and then everyone's like oh my god Mia Charles is a shit film (laughs) yeah that was definitely part of it I think did you put any like parameters or practices in place to like help you through that you know like what were you doing in the kind of days leading up to the shoot to sort of give you confidence essentially crying (laughs) other than that no you know what it and I sort of tell the story quite often because I think it's really important actually like in the you know obviously there was there was the constant constant COVID anxiety that, that I knew there was nothing to do like at the end of the day if my actor or my DP or basically anybody or my crew because we were skeleton crew obviously there were so few of us had said I've got COVID the shoot, that, that would be it game over and you know you've got your all your kit booked that you've paid for and like your insurance mm. will only cover so much stuff and it was a real worry and also this is when lockdown was just changing all the time but yeah in the weeks leading up in the days leading up I felt so sick with anxiety like it was crippling and I do get anxiety I am someone who sort of I don't want to say I suffer with it because I, I don't get it as bad as many people but it, it does it does happen so I think it was like a couple of nights before I decided to go for a walk which again is not something I really I don't go night walking it's something <laughs> I particularly do but I just walked around and I was walking around Tottenham which is where I was living and where we were making the film and I was walking up and down the road that we were going to be shooting on and that sort of thing probably looking like a psycho and uh I was trying to figure out what it was that was making me so anxious I, I just realized that actually I'd, I'd, I'd never really had a good experience on sets before like I'd worked on a short just before this which you know was a really really nice group of people and actually that was okay but I the feature that I'd mentioned earlier that kept getting delayed that I'd worked on I sort of you know I I had a really really negative experience uh, as did most people working on that film and I I just I realized that's what was worrying me it was just like this feeling that I'm having is the feeling of knowing like when the day ahead is going to be bad you know and Mm -hmm. when I've been on this film it had been like every night going to bed feeling like you know I would like wake up and my jaw would be sore I've been like grinding my teeth Mm. in my sleep and stuff I was so anxious and so I walked around and I sort of came and sort of talked out with my housemate and she was just like you know uh, Cara Davison I said to shout her out because she's a very very good person to live with if you're a filmmaker but she's just like you know you have complete control over how things are on your set it's your set it's not somebody else's you're the director you can make that choice so I basically sent an email to everybody on the film like obviously thanking them you know for for everything they've done but also sort of saying like I have a zero tolerance policy to like nastiness basically we're you know it's it's they're two quite long shoot days I want to make sure everyone has a nice time but like if if at any point you're being made to feel uncomfortable or somebody's upset you or whatever please 
you know, let me let me know. And luckily there was none of that. And actually, like once I'd sort of, you know, got on set and you get the first scene shot out of the way and it feels so completely surreal that you're standing there and someone's saying action and then everyone's like looking at you and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> once you get over that the first time, it's like a it's like a drug, really. It just, yeah, it was amazing. It was really, really good. And we have to touch on how you found a producer because, again, that's something that I know a lot of people struggle with. You know, they, they're often said to be gold dust and they kind of are, especially with short films. What was that process like for you? How did you find Alex? And then I know you're working with Jesse um, on your next feature. So um, next feature, next short, sorry. So how did you make those connections? With Alex, what happened is I'd had I'd had a friend of mine, another another Alex, who had helped me like write the BFI application and do all of that stuff, and then we hadn't got the money. So she, you know, obviously at that point she was like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of not in a sort of position to be able to carry on, which is completely uh, completely fine. There's uh, there's another producer who is actually quite quite an established producer who I'd been put in touch with, who's from Tottenham also, and knew that I was making the film in Tottenham, so it was like. She was like, I'll have a coffee with you, if nothing else. Um, and she was really great, actually. And she said, like, look, I'm not I'm not in a position to be able to, I'm not really doing shorts anymore. But there, she had like a kind of basically a list of producers' emails who were who had all indicated they might be happy to, to, to produce shorts and was like, just just here you go, have them and do your best, basically. Mm. So I just ended up basically sending, like, to be honest, I think now I'd probably be a bit more targeted, but quite a sort of like round robin email of like, hi this is who I am this is what my film's about does anyone want to produce it and fortunately for me Alex is one of the people that has sort of got in touch and we'd agreed to go for for a drink and I'd gone in and we, we sort of laugh about it now because I'd gone in with the like I'm not leaving this like this conversation until she's agreed to be my <laughs> and I think she'd very much been like I'll just go in and scope out and see what's going on. And by the end of the evening, I persuaded her to uh, to produce it. And again, it's always one of those funny things. So the sort of theme of my shorts, uh, very much based on a real life scenario with one of my ex-boyfriends, who I haven't seen for like years. And he actually lived in Tottenham, uh, although I hadn't seen him since I'd moved there or anything. And um, after meeting her, I got off the tube and a car pulled up and it was him. <laughs> And he was like, you're right. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen you for ages. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen him. And you know, it's that thing when I was like, it's a sign. <laughs> it's a sign that she is going to be my producer. And I, I was right. We had a few conversations and then lockdown hit. And it was just like, right, okay, you know, we'll keep in touch. And then, yeah, as soon as things started opening up again, I, I sort of been like, right, there's the weekend. That's when lockdown's opening this is the weekend that we have to do it. And it just mm. was like all systems go from there, really. And then Jesse, yeah, I think Jesse Gutch is a bit of a nominated uh, producer and, and director in her own right as well. I'd sort of put a call out on Twitter again for a producer. And because Alex got a job at Protagonist Pictures, where she works now. So fair enough. Uh, although she, she, yeah, she possibly will still be involved in this project in, in some way or another. But yeah, Jesse had sort of, sort of got in contact and I'd interviewed her last year because I'm on the I'm on the um, nominations committee for Biffa and I'd actually sort of chaired the shorts voters. So we'd done these interviews with, mm. the, with the shorts voters. I'd met her there and we'd obviously just like followed each other on Twitter and Instagram or whatever. And mm. she was like, oh, I'd be interested in having a chat. And again, I sometimes think with Jesse, she was like, oh, let me just scope it out. And I was like, so you're my producer now. <laughs> yeah. Once you find them, you're going to hold on to them for dear life. Definitely. I'm never letting her go. 
you mentioned there like that you were interested in real life scenarios I'm wondering if we can expand a little bit and talk about the kinds of stories that you're interested in as a filmmaker you know you touched on a love of British cinema earlier on like are those your main influences as well Definitely, definitely. I think, and I don't know, I always hate saying that because it always sounds a bit like Brexit-y. <laughs> Not like that at all. But yeah, I think I'm just very interested in the stories of quite ordinary everyday people and kind of what go what goes on in their in their lives. And I think I'm I suppose my sort of overarching interests are sort of working class stories, particularly female working class stories. And certainly at the moment in the last couple of years, I've been doing quite a lot of research on the criminal justice system and female experiences of prison and crime and I'm really interested in how we talk about crime in popular culture because I think that we're very good at being like hey here is a crime that's been committed like whether that be serial killers and like you know I am a sucker for true crime as much as the next person and you know I think there are some really good examples out there of films that really touch on the prison experience and I think that there are loads of examples of films that explore the root causes of crime in a way that is like super important we need to understand why people commit crimes and education poverty you know all, all those sorts of things but I suppose I'm just I'm just quite interested in how people feel about things and the experiences they have and which sounds ridiculous but I actually think the way of kind of creating empathy when it comes to these things is not being like asking you to choose a political decision do you agree with prison yes or no is this crime like unforgivable or not like you know obviously I have my own personal opinions on those things but I actually don't think that's the way to get people on board I think the way to get people on board and to start asking these questions is for them to kind of empathize with with human beings and with people and their experiences so I definitely think that you know, my first film explored, you know, explored crime in like a really adjacent way. You know, you know, there's this woman whose partner hasn't come home and she's worried about what's happened. And what we know about him is that he, he, you know, he is a drug dealer and, but it's, it's not about him being a drug dealer. And I think in really early drafts of the script, I'd really wanted to be like, but he's not a bad person. You don't understand. It's actually like, no, people can make their own minds up about him. You know, mm-hmm. he's actually irrelevant to the story. Actually, in this case, it's very much about, about her experience experiences of the worry and and the concern but it's it's actually you know anyone that's seen the film will know it's actually a story of quite an ordinary evening that maybe doesn't feel very ordinary for lots of us but for her it's certainly just another part of her life before we get into some of the more like general creative questions that I like to ask towards the end of an interview we do I would like to talk about your job at Doc Society because I think it's really interesting you work as a is it climate unit officer that's climate story unit climate story unit officer so can we talk a little bit about what you're doing there what does that entail so yeah, as, as you know, I sort of work on a freelance basis and, and there'll be a permanent person moving in there shortly. But yeah, I absolutely love working working with, with Drop Society and they have sort of various funds. And I, I work on the one particular fund, which is the Climate Story Fund, which is a global fund that's open to uh, storytellers. So that's not just filmmakers, that's actually not just documentary either, like podcasts, AR, VR kind of experiences you know it's very open in that way basically uplifting the sort of voices that are often left out of the climate conversation that you know people that are frontline of the climate crisis globally and I'm wondering like because I mean I know you're not telling stories that are directly involved with the environment but I'm wondering if like having that foot in the door of like a funder and knowing how that process works and how funding applications work whether that's made you more savvy with regards to your own writing and your own stories and whether you think about them from a funding perspective or is very much just instinctual I want to tell this story and like the funding element will come later 
Yeah, I wish. I wish that people were savvy. But you know what? No, actually. And I, and I would argue that filmmakers should not think about that at all. And also, I mean, documentary and as a documentary filmmaker, you have to think about a totally different set of rules, actually, I think, mm. which oh, I'm probably going to get shot for saying this, but I actually think it's a lot harder than making fiction for many reasons. But that's a whole other story for a whole other day. I think I don't I don't think that people should be as a creative person. If you get to the point where you're saying like, what are they going to want you're not really making art that's authentic to you I think what you, what is really good for filmmakers to get good at is learning how to write funding applications which is a you know which which is a skill in and of itself that mm. takes a lot of time and effort and certainly not so much with with doc society but certainly I've you know I've, I've worked on other funds before and stuff and you, you're sort of reading something someone said and you're like you bash this out in 20 minutes and you've not thought about it at all like and that's so obvious mm. learning how to talk about your projects in a way that is appealing to funders is what the key is yeah it's knowing your project inside and out so yeah as you say like you can kind of put it in different contexts and have the have the right conversation for the right yeah as you say the right funder or the right people I mean, I'd love to know, we've, we've touched a little bit on on the kind of the seedier sides of the, the film industry. I'm wondering what frustrates you most about the film industry at the moment? There are so many things. I suppose I, I feel quite frustrated at the lack of opportunities for people, for lots of people, for people from like lower income backgrounds, particularly. I think that everything in the film industry feels like the lottery all the time. If you've had an achievement in the film industry, if you're not from sort of from a fairly wealthy background or, or privately educated, I think that's that really frustrates me. I think that it's quite unfair. And, I, you know, I'm luckier than most at this point in my career. I'm sort of fairly established, but I still have those feelings, you know, on occasion that I'm not going to be taken seriously. And I think that that, you know, I think that if we want and what I'm about to say is is not new and hasn't not that hasn't been said a thousand times but if we want like art and film to reflect our society we need to have the people not just not just filmmakers actually you know the people in in the organizations that are like deciding who's funding this that and the other who are deciding which films to uplift and which films to promote we we need to make we need to be like encouraging people from all sorts of backgrounds you know races gender class all of that to be a part of it and we have to do what we can to make it easier mm. for those people I think definitely and I'm not sure that we're currently doing that in a way that is actually meaningful I, I, I'm seeing a lot of you know commissioning going on in going on and sort of saying oh look look at us we're supporting black people or we're supporting working class people and then we, we never hear about it ever again it's like well it's great for those filmmakers that you grabbed in that moment in time mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but like it's not really meaningful if you're just trying to project an image of I care about these things when you actually don't yeah yeah if they're treating it like just a wave as opposed to something that's you know sustained yeah obviously being a biffa voter it's really great this year to see like way 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 more films from sort of black filmmakers or, or uh, filmmakers of color um actually female filmmakers you know i mean for a really long time now it's actually been like a way more film, female filmmakers and queer stories and all of that that's been like really really lovely I just hope that it can be sustained or that it's you know people encourage it to be sustained and then conversely what's something that excites you about the film industry at the moment I think yeah I think as someone who maybe tries to keep their finger in the pulse of what's happening with British cinema I think we have I think we, the last couple of years 
has particularly, you know, I think that there's an idea of what British cinema is that falls into two distinct categories. It's like, you know, it's Notting Hill and Four Weddings and a Funeral or it's Ken Loach, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> who, who I adore. It's one of my favourites. But, you know, it's like sort of like dreary kitchen sink kind of stories. And I think what we're seeing a lot more of at the moment is filmmakers who are ex- who are experimenting a lot more with form, who are experimenting a lot more with style. It's not even about, it's not even about the people in the stories. It's about the way the story is being told. Mm. And actually, like, I am someone who, you know, obviously, given my role in, in in Biffa and stuff, like, I love short films. And I actually think that way more people would be a lot more optimistic about the film industry now if they spent time actually watching those short films. Because this is where you're seeing filmmakers who, who aren't limited by, like, this is the runtime your film has to be. This is how we have to market it. They're not limited by any of those things. It's just pure, like this is my heart and this is what I'm making. And that's so exciting, you know? And again, I think if you look at most of your favourite f- f- filmmakers, take someone like Lynn Ramsey for a, for a really obvious example, and then you actually look back at the short films that she was making. And I just think, oh my God, like it blows my mind when you actually see the trajectory of those people and how they've taken like ideas that they've had so early on and, and made them into these, you know, and how they've drip fed into their work sort of later on. It's one of my favourite things to do. I think it's, yeah, I think everyone should watch more short films, to be honest. Do you think that's because, like, short form, yeah, it's more unadulterated or you're less, I guess, reliant on knowing, I don't know, that there's there needs to be, like, a narrative or that it needs to make sense or the three-act structure or whatever it is that kind of pins together a feature. It's just, it's less required of a short film. Definitely. I think that's definitely part of it. You know, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's also people that don't have lots of, lots of think like hands on them. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, obviously like that, you know, you have publicly funded films that maybe the BFI and Film Forum BBC do, but even then, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there is development that goes on and there is, but there's, there's like not as much interference, I think, because nobody's, nobody's trying to make money off your film. (laughs) That's not what it's for. So it's just this idea of someone being like, this is, this is, this is who I am, really. Mm. Is there something in your career that you're proudest of having achieved? Yeah, uh, the film getting into London Film Festival is probably it, to be honest. I mean, look, there are so many things and I think it's really hard to pick one because my career is so multifaceted. There's obviously been like events that I've been like that to me was incredible Mm. I have so many memories of events where I really felt like especially events that I've curated rather than just events that I've delivered that people have come to and it's really like amazing to see a sold out room of people that are like here to watch something you've put together that's incredible and like I I did a in 2020 before lockdown I did a a sort of series of of short sort of shorts and music videos for the London Short Film Festival about the grime scene which is something I'd been wanting to do for years that was that was a high like of, of my career can't compare it to like people watching my film at London Film Festival because it's just so different do you know what I mean it's such a different experience is that because it was your hometown like it was in the NFT one like what was it particularly or specifically about that that made it so special I mean, being honest, as anyone who, who has spoken to me in the last few weeks, I actually hate, actually hate, the, similar to before I shot my film, the days leading up, I was just an anxious mess. I, I don't know if I'll ever enjoy sitting in a room full of people, like, <laughs> watching my film. It's only retrospectively I could look back and go, well done, Nia, that was really good. <laughs> You smash that one out of the park. You know, I just, I think like most people, and I always wonder, I'm always just like, am I the only one that feels it because no one talks about it? Like, 
I hated it. I hated every moment of, of the actual like sitting in there and, you know, worrying constantly that because you can never see like you can never see your film in any other way than, you know, you can never see it um, objectively. And obviously the vast majority of people who have seen my film are my friends. They're not going to turn around and tell me my film shit. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> And then I guess getting into London Film Festival, you then feel like, okay, this is where people who don't know me have said that my film is good. That's great. But then I was like, I basically said to myself, if one person who I don't know tells me they like my film, I'll be happy. And I actually had two random people DM me on Twitter who I don't, uh, on Instagram, who I don't know, which by the way, I really encourage everyone to do. If you like someone's work, tell them. Tell them. It's a really nice thing to do. And it's something that I've really actively tried to do for, for at least the last year. It was like a thing that I sort of told myself at the beginning of the year, if you like someone's work, you should really tell them. And I had two people DMing me on Instagram being like, I just want to say that I really liked your film. And I was like, well, I guess only two people liked my film and I'll never be happy. And then I'd love to know if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or to like frame it differently, whether there's something that you wish that you'd learn earlier. I suppose I, you know, I, I, whether it's something that I've, a skill that I've sort of developed over time, but I do, I, I really do think that it's incredibly important to stand up for yourself and to stand up for people and what, and what you think is the right thing. I think that's so important. And I think, I wish that I had more tact sometimes in the way that I speak and how I like voice my disdain for something or whatever. I wish I was better at that. I am one of those people that I will spend every single day going, ah. That thing that I said two weeks ago was just so embarrassing. Why did I do that? I am just one of those people. And I just think I'm always going to be one of those people. But I think it's really, really important to stick by a set of standards that you set for yourself and to not go below them. And I think that, you know, that that is probably, especially in an industry where you have to be quite tough at times. I think it's really, really important to say like what, what you will tolerate and what you won't. And it, that whether that's to do with how much money that you'll accept for a job or whether that's to do with how many times like a colleague is going to be rude to you before you tell them to fuck off. Do you know what I mean? It has to sort of, you have to set those standards for yourself. That's yeah. So true. Thank you for sharing that. And then finally, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem or that you return to lots and that you'd like to recommend? I would like to recommend the entire catalogue of the work of Antonia Bird, who sadly passed away. And I think I think 2013, she is a filmmaker who I just think not enough people are aware of. I think she made quite a lot of TV movies and I think maybe maybe part, that's part of the reason. And she did a film um, with Kate Hardy called Safe and Robert Carlyle, who Kate Hardy and Robert Carlyle play these two people who are homeless and just trying to get by. And it's not an easy watch, but uh, I, I, ju- I just think that her compassion, like the way that she demonstrates compassion in her filmmaking is 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 something particularly special actually I think you can watch a lot of her stuff on YouTube there is still stuff of hers that I've not seen because it's just really hard to get hold of I think also like I am somebody who I'm just like very nostalgic for the 90s I love just seeing old footage of streets and places from the in the past and I Mm -hmm. think actually especially a film about sort of people who are homeless who are who are on the streets at night quite a lot of the time sort of meandering around and walking around is something that you know that, that really does something to me as well amazing well I'll definitely be sure to check those out um Nia thank you so much for your time today it's been such a pleasure and a thrill to chat with you I'm so glad we got to do this oh thank you so much for having me 
thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Bye.